know, Gene, I still can't believe that the epic adventure sorcerer was so completely overlooked. Now, here was a large-scale, big-budget action picture, lots of fun. It starred Academy Award nominee Roy Scheider. It was made by Academy Award winner William Friedkin, the director of The Exorcist and The French Connection. And this movie died a quick death at the box office. Sort of a tricky situation. We talked about the special effects. That last shot had some special effects in it, at least three. The guy in the foreground is really there. The truck in the background is a real big model, and then the rain is kind of laid on top of it. So uh, this movie really does have great special effects, but it didn't help it. You can see there that the sorcerer is on a level way above most action pictures. The movie was a labor of love for director William Friedkin. He wanted to show human behavior at its extremes. Men determined to complete a life-or-death mission against all odds and discovering their own limits at the same time. The jungle scenes, the rain and flood, the fire and catastrophe are among the most exciting movie scenes I've ever seen, but for some reason, the studio opened this movie with a lousy advertising campaign at the last minute. They had no faith in the picture's future. They pulled it out of the lousy theaters they got it into <laughs> after a few weeks. Sorcerer certainly qualifies as one of the great lost films of the 1970s. You're right about that. I don't share your enthusiasm for the film. I mm -hmm. talked to the director, Bill Friedkin, about it. The thing that he thinks is wrong is what I think is wrong. And the characters seem to me to be a little cold. Uh, we notice the special effects, they're mm -hmm. so powerful, mm -hmm. more than the people in the truck. So we're more worried about the truck than the people. That aside, <laughs> I still share your amazement. This was a very expensive film, $24 million to make. I'm amazed yeah. that it was just dispatched. So, okay, so, so you didn't like it. A lot of people didn't like the yeah. picture, but a $20 million picture has to make 45 or $50 million to break even. Mm -hmm. This one didn't come anywhere close to that. It probably if it made $5 million, it was lucky. You'd think it could make more than that. Just by opening in the first week, people stumbling into the wrong theater looking for Bruce Lee should have made more than that. I but the I'd studio simply uh, rejected it. They didn't support it. They didn't tell people it was coming. They didn't care about it. You had the answer there when you said the studio. Right. This picture actually was made by two studios, Paramount Pictures and Universal Pictures. What happened is I think each guy, each studio thought the other guy was going to mm -hmm. handle it. Mm -hmm. Nobody cared enough about it as a sole project of their own. It was dropped in between them. Okay, so what do people do when a picture like this comes out? How do they know it's good, in my opinion, or if it's bad, in your opinion? How do they know about it before the picture closes? Well, they, in this case, they had to find it out on their own. Because what happened is, here was a picture that also had a very bad title. Um, they, it was called Sorcerer. Now, Bill Friedkin had made a picture called The Exorcist. Mm -hmm. Sorcerer sounds like it's another Exorcist picture. Well, there had been so many Exorcist films right after The Exorcist that when this guy came out, People were, one, fed up with it, or two, they went hopeful that it was a, another exorcism kind of film. They got there and they saw somebody in a truck they said, where's the devil? So this film was confusing for that reason. What people should do in something like this is, well, they better read your newspaper. Read the critics, right. Real quick. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast, episode 34.1. Freaking, freaking. Sorcerer commentary, Dave and I sat around, consumed mass quantities, and as much as we tried to focus on Hurricane Billy Friedkin and his work, we quickly descended into how we consume cinema, soundtracks, and Friedkin's fellow auteurs. We go all over the place, but you can follow along. Same time or not, I think I went to both of them in the theater and my memory of the two have completely intertwined. You saw Best Defense in a Theater? Huh? I think we did talk about this. Yeah, I think we did. But it's one of those where it's like, oh, yeah, 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 same movie. No, it's not. What's the difference between Sorcerer and Star Wars? 
Well, gosh, there's innumerable. But uh, what do you mean by what's the difference? I mean, because certainly you don't mean from a story standpoint or anything from a service perspective, because those differences are obvious. Obvious. Is your question, why was one terribly successful and one not so much? Or is it, why was it there an appeal? Which is, I guess, maybe the same thing. Because my feeling is that, you know, my perception of the differences in the reception and the subsequent financial success or not so much are pretty straightforward. The 70s, especially the early 70s, early to mid 70s, were a pretty rough fucking time for the United States, culturally. Right? We, you had the Vietnam War that was ending, you had the Nixon debacle, you had economic, let's go with challenges, you had the oil crisis, it was just a not, you had disco for God's sakes, there was this just this barrage of tough topics for the general American public. The BFI specifically states those reasons for the attitude and the tone of The Exorcist. Which makes a lot of sense for probably a high percentage of the movies that came out in the 70s that are recognized as classics, right? But there gets to be a point where probably very much like similar circumstances in the Great Depression where it's like, and maybe even now, it's like, okay, people on a day-to-day basis, I have, I have enough fucking problems that I have to work with on my day-to-day life. I don't need to pay additional money to be entertained with these circumstances. You know, Taxi Driver is an undeniably great movie. Is it a pleasant watch? Eh, probably not. Right? But it's it's fantastic. And it's worth a watch and then a rewatch. And, you know, a lot of The Exorcist is a much more pot-boiler entertainment than, say, Taxi Driver, but it's still a very dark theme. So when Rocky came out, and Jaws, and then Star Wars, it's like, okay, there's some optimism, there's, a you know, two hours away from my problems, I like it, and, you know, Star Wars in specific is so dramatically different than anybody had seen prior. I mean, I remember seeing it as a kid. I was, I mean, granted, I was six, so it's not like I'd seen all these great classics of the 70s, but it was certainly something that was crystallized in the mind for people my age and even those much older. I mean, I remember my parents saw it first. They came back and were like, oh, gosh, that was that was pretty remarkable. That was amazing. Even as a, as a sci-fi, Star Wars is a huge departure from what came before. Right. I mean, and then mm-hmm. you look at some other science fiction movies, you know, calling Star Wars science fiction is probably a stretch, but that's fine. Yeah, space opera, fantasy. Right. It's, it's, it's Flash Gordon. And Flash Gordon, back in the 1930s serial, you know, entertaining enough, I suspect, for the time. But technologically, it was probably still impressive for the time, but to audiences in the 70s and even by the 60s and 50s was pretty antiquated. Whereas Star Wars, you absolutely bought it. Like, it took 2001's base technology and how to portray this stuff and then expanded it to entertainment. I don't know if Kubrick was necessarily shooting for entertainment with 2001 per se, or at least not exclusively. Certainly he wanted it to be something that the audience would enjoy, but pretty much on his terms as opposed to what the audience 
wanted, which is probably the huge secret that George Lucas had as a filmmaker once he got past THX, right? I mean, American Graffiti and Star Wars are almost designed in a lab to entertain us, you know, its target audience. It's we I recognize what people want, and I'm going to give them that on a scale and, and a level of expertise they've never seen before. American graffiti, especially so. I mean, that's going after a very a slice of a demographic. Right. It was basically George Lucas. Right. Yeah. Uh, Star Wars seemed to it's much capture, more universal. Right. And I mean, it's probably. I hesitate to say it, but it's probably the most popular film ever made. Well, depending yeah. on how one defines it, it probably had the biggest impact on popular culture that any film has ever made. You know, is it like you were referencing in the uh, commentary podcast, you know, Gone with the Wind and some of the other ones. I, I'm sure Star Wars is in the top five from number of tickets sold or adjusted inflation or however it's being measured. But I think it had an impact on the popular culture from that point to to this day that's unrivaled. Sure. Not only did it capture the imagination, but it profited from the imagination. I don't necessarily mean that pejoratively. You know, they recognized that people wanted to take the experience home with them. I mean, I remember the Star Wars action figures. And, you know, I think they're still quite popular. But that was the first time that I'm aware of that it really, that marketing and ancillary products really impacted day-to-day life. I had the list of adjusted for inflation. And like I said before, The Exorcist was number nine. So number one is Gone with the Wind. Okay. Star Wars is two. The Sound of Music is three. Four is E.T. That's kind of surprising. Five is Titanic. Six is The Ten Commandments, the 1956 version. Yes. Jaws is seven. Eight, Dr. Zhivago. That's really actually very surprising. People don't remember how No, it certainly hasn't stayed around. Yeah. No, it hasn't. You're right. And I don't know. I mean, it's kind of like Avatar. Well, no, it's, it's much more lasting than Avatar, of course. But... To today's audience, like it, ha- it just hasn't. It's not left that indelible mark like the rest of those you mentioned have. Yeah, the, the Exorcist, number nine, number ten, Snow White, and the Seven Dwarves. Okay. So, like I said before, there, there's not a single film from the from the 21st century that's in the top ten. Now, number eleven is The Force Awakens. Wow. Okay. Right, and then uh, the next one is Avatar, number fifteen. Okay. Sixteen is Avengers Endgame. No, wait, you jumped past a couple. I did, but I was just oh, I was oh, picking you're, films you're, you're from the 21st century. Gotcha. Yeah. Scroll scroll, 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 scroll. Yeah, I mean, it, it's... You have to go... Okay, The Avengers is 29. Jurassic World is 30. Black Panther, 31. No, oh, that's distressing. Dark Knight, 33. You know, the Avengers Affinity Wars, 36, and so on and so on. Track 2, 38. I'll stop at. So there are, you know, it's a pretty decent percentage of the top, I don't know, top 50? 
But it also belies something that's changed in our culture, which is, you know, Gone with the Wind was in theaters literally for 25-something years. Well, yeah, with the yeah. Uh, continued re-releases. Right. Well, yeah, not continued re-releases. Like, there was a theater in New York City that literally showed Gone with the Wind during that entire time, and it never shut it down. Okay. It was it was just running on, I don't know how many screens it was running on, probably just one, but they had such a draw for it that they just never... Oh yeah, never took it off, and the sound of music was in theaters for years. And then I'm, it, I'm sure whenever they, because it became a a television staple. I don't know when, right? Right. Yeah, so the I'm syndication sure rights. When they re-released it in theaters, I'm sure it did fine business. Kind of like remember when the Star Wars special editions came out? I mean, it may have been number one like the week it, it was. Came out, it was. So. Yeah. Yeah, I saw the special, all three special editions in theater. Yeah, me, me as well. Yeah. It's it's kind of weird actually because uh, I don't know how many times I saw Jedi when it came out. I, I probably saw it two three times. Yeah, I would imagine this kind of yeah. where I was. Um, but I've seen Jedi in, in the theater like many more times since then. Like I've probably seen it in the theater five six times. Wow! Like, I know, I think in, in the last it. twenty years. Wow! I, I think I've only seen it the one time on the uh, <clears throat> first go around special edition. Mm-hmm. But I could be mistaken. So Sorcerer. If it's getting re-released, I would love to see that on the Absolutely. big screen. But it will not break the top, won't crack the top ten or anything. No. Even as low as that bar is set right now. No, I, I think that that talent is reserved for The Exorcist. That seems pretty likely. Because it was, it was re-released in in uh, the late 90s okay. for the 25th anniversary. That was a big deal. And right. they put it on, on DVD in 1998 mm-hmm. for the 25 year. Talk about The Exorcist when we cover The Exorcist. <laughs> right. But, but Blatty and Friedkin were kind of at odds for a very long time, and then they, they started communicating with each other, and they, they started collaborating again together, and then they, they re-released the movie in The Exorcist, the version you've never seen before. Mm-hmm. I think it was the year 2000 or 2001, and that was the one that had the spider crawl, and I saw it in the theater then. Okay. Uh, and I think that was the last time I saw it in, in the theater. In the big screen. On yeah. The big screen. But I, that, that, I mean, I've seen The Exorcist probably... I'm just going to say 15, 20 times on VHS. That's quite a few times. Home. I think I've only seen it once or twice, yeah. twice myself. And I think since I've had the DVD, I bought the, it was one of the first few DVDs I, I purchased. Mm-hmm. My wife was like, oh my God, what's wrong with you? It's like, what an interesting choice. Yeah. And like, I thought your fascination with Nazis was horrible. <laughs> it's like, well, like, no. This you, is way worse. I can find Nazis that are getting <laughs> possessed, man, I tell you. And that movie is called Overlord. Uh, I haven't seen it, but I know you're, you speak fondly of it. It's awesome. Uh but I, I know that I've watched that DVD, you know, probably ten times. Okay. If not, if not more. And I've watched all the commentaries mm-hmm. on it. And actually, I think the third or fourth track on the, on the film is, is the run tape of uh, Mercedes McCambridge. Okay. Who's the voice of, of Pazuzu. Gotcha. And it's just her saying filthy shit. <laughs> that like sounds like I, I'm sure that's going to have some kind of following so, on so porn up or something. My wife came in. So right. What are you doing? <laughs> like, let's not discuss this ever. My wife came in uh, to our apartment, our first apartment, and that was playing. And, and it was Mercedes McCambridge just doing like <laughs> filthy cunt. Do you know what she did? <laughs> Your canting daughter. Said, uh, we need to have a conversation. <laughs> Friedkin's never apologized for Sorcerer. No, he seems to have always, you know, belligerently defended it. Mm-hmm. Even in this interview that you were just showing me, it talks for an hour to who? Ruffin. He's the guy who did Drive and Only God Forgives. 
Oh, he directed Drive? Yeah. With Ryan Gosling? Swindling Ruffin. That, that is an amazing film. That's a very good flick. Yeah. I have not seen... Well, he hasn't... I don't know how many movie he's, movies he's made. You know, Drive was great. I did not see Only God Forgives. I think he has something else. He, I think he did a television show. Drive was 2011. Yeah, that's amazing. It's been that long now. That's disturbing. Yeah. Nicholas Winding Ruffin. Ruffin. I, I, probably butchering it, I'm sure. He's Danish, so we're allowed to butcher it. All right, cool. Neon Demon, that was one. I didn't see that. Copenhagen Cowboy. <laughs> Too Old to Die Young, a TV miniseries. That's a remake. Valhalla Rising. I didn't, Bronson probably was, he wrote that apparently. So he's also something of a... Oh, director. Uh, he's remaking Maniac Cop. Oh, theoretically, who knows? There are so many things that are lined up in those. Only God forgives. Valhalla Rising. I've never even heard of these movies. Pusher, Pusher 2, Pusher 3, Fear yeah, X, I suspect they're Danish flicks that really didn't get a lot of exposure in the United States. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. But, yeah, I mean, so this whole hour-long interview essentially is Refn just quizzing Friedkin on Sorcerer, its making, and its response, going back to you know, what's the difference between Star Wars and Sorcerer. And Sorcerer is not, it is absolutely, in my opinion, not some kind of esoteric art film. I mean, it's also popular entertainment. Yeah. It's just... I could see where the audiences of the 70s at this point were like, going, I don't need this. This isn't what I'm looking for right now. See, I thought, well, that's because it's a failure. Is that because it's a failure? That's why it's because well, it's a failure. I think I think that's a, a retrospective attitude of Sorcerer was a failure because people were just, by the time it came out, they were, they were tired of the malaise of the 70s. And right. I think that's the wrong reason, reasoning. I think that it bombed because there was just a astoundingly popular movie that, that it, yeah, but Smoking Gave the Bandit known. was hugely you know, popular well, the same year. Well, yeah, that was extremely positive for sure. But Apocalypse Now is not until 79. People dug that film. It's yeah, pretty but nihilistic. It, it certainly wasn't Star Wars. Or The Deer Hunter. My God, when was that? 78? Probably about that. But, you know, The Deer Hunter was certainly um, was very financially nihilistic. successful. It hugely, yeah. But it was, you know, and also The Deer Hunter is not necessarily terribly nihilistic right it's it's it can be interpreted as it's, it's entertaining right i mean the war sequences just like in apocalypse now are they're thrilling you know they're audience pleasers you know it's kind of hard to do war films without to a certain degree having a vicarious thrill through thrill to them that's for sure but you know they they end the movie with you know god bless america and i know that was taken in a lot of different ways by the audiences at the time but you know i look at sorcerer not like those movies but much more like taxi driver and later raging bull and oh gosh i'm just totally blanking on but like you said those movies were successes they were so i don't think that the sorcerer failed because it was a depressing movie well I, i'm not saying it's necessarily a failure because of it but it certainly was working against it i think in the time frame Especially when, you know, okay, so obviously everything that was after Star Wars kind of got steamrolled. We know that. But 
Silent Running isn't a successful movie. That was a pretty good size bomb, and that was what a, maybe a year after Star Wars or two years maybe. I mean, I think that that's well, frankly, I, I don't like that movie. I don't think it's very good, although it's probably better than I remember. But I think it's also one of those things where that's just not what the audience was wanting at the time. I think Star Wars, you know, Jaws and Rocky leading into Star Wars led into the 80s where you had about, what, seven years straight of, okay, we are going to go for the audience-pleasing movie. Sure, sure. Which is sure. fantastic. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But then by the end of the 80s, you're kind of veering away from that type of, you know, type of, I don't want to call it shallow entertainment. Yeah. That's not fair. I, I see what you're saying. I mean, but the, the lucrativeness of Jaws had not been seen for like 15 years. Yeah, and almost to a certain degree, never, right? Yeah. Cause that, was a unique, that was the first time really a movie had been opened wide, really kind of ever. There was no road show, really to speak. It was like, okay, we're just opening it in a thousand theaters. Right. And boom. And people said, yes, I'll take my money. Yeah. And the reason they wanted to take the money was, I mean, Jaws is it's an absolute classic. Right, and that's absolutely part of the reason why it's was so financially successful. But I think part of it was also that it was like it's entertaining. You know, it doesn't make you think. It doesn't you know, a good movie doesn't have to make you think. Just like a bad movie, you know, just because something makes you think doesn't mean it's good. Right, just something, well, something that's yeah, and it's also it's it's kind of I mean, people think about Jaws as popcorn, but there's so many different things going. On in a film. It's the best popcorn ever made. You know, yeah, I mean the you know Scheider doing basically like a like a, a man versus nature, mm -hmm. and then uh, Robert Shaw doing like a man versus man right, almost. Right. I don't think that's why it was popular. No, but I I, I certainly think that those themes that helped certainly it. enhanced the quality, I mean, which was recognized. Yeah, I mean like people people see Star Wars as this sort of generic, super popular Joseph Campbell. Really broadly and that's produced. That's part of it. Well, that's part of it, but at at the same time, there's a lot of things, and particularly at the end of Star Wars, that go into the dreaded word fascism. And, Never heard of it. And uh, <laughs> yeah, the and the hero and that we need now, and, and right. the reluctance um, do gooder, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. That yeah, it's a much deeper movie than. The people giving credit for yeah, it. Yeah. Then people, uh, Check the BFI uh, book on Star Wars. It's pretty incredible. Okay. No, it's, 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 it's really well done, mm. obviously. Um, and actually, I don't think that I hate to say obviously because I do think that to a certain degree it is looked upon with a high level of derision, not because of itself, but for what followed. Right, yeah. There's a retrospective. Because it was followed with such shit, right. people are looking kind of badly at it now. But And also it's... Not that necessarily it was shit, but to a large degree, it did eliminate a lot of the things that were popular in the early to mid-70s. That came before it. Right. Yeah. Well, it was harder. When you look at films like The Exorcist or films like The Omen, which is a, a fantastic film. Yeah, that Richard, all hell. Richard Donner did. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that was his first film. Really? And, yeah, I think so. And if you think that's the guy who did fucking Superman, you yeah. know, it's just it's it's crazy. different. But the, that's the sort of art auteur spirit that we saw in the 70s mm -hmm. it created the exorcist it created the omen and it created star wars mm -hmm. you know and it created uh the first encounters of the third kind and it created jaws and and i i don't think that you can you can say well it worked here and it didn't work here like it created sorcerer so right right but everything comes to an end right i mean take a look at the mcu 
He's been the most dominant film entertainment for what fifteen years since two thousand eight. Yeah, yeah. So, and you can tell that it's winding down from an influence perspective. I mean, Guardians of the Galaxy three. I don't know what your thoughts on it were. It's like I thought it was pretty good, mm-hmm. kind of manipulative, and that kind of bothered me. But broadly speaking, quite good. But it's certainly not going to be remembered as a classic of his genre. I don't believe we're not used to Marvel films being pretty good. Well, we're used to them being absolutely stellar. That's not accurate. That's not accurate. I saw a list on your door of phases one through three and pull that list down. And I guarantee you, if you look at it, there's a much lower hit rate than you were than you're thinking. It started off really rough. Iron Man's great. Yes. Hulk is terrible. Hulk is terrible. And that was followed by Iron Man 2, which is okay. Uh, and then Thor. And Thor is okay. No, I, I disagree. I think Thor is a great film. I, I'm, no, I, I think The Thor Dark is, World is tapers off a bit, but Ragnarok great. obviously is, is way top five. The first, yeah. the first Thor is okay. It has uh, some good things. I, I love the first Thor. Uh, yeah. Well. It, I think they had a pretty solid run. Right. I think that. Captain America First Avengers is pretty darn good. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, the First Avengers is very good. But, I mean, yeah, if you look at the list, it's, I think, from a reevaluation perspective, it's a lower hit rate than we like to think. It's just mm. that the highs, there were several highs, like, where they're hitting two out of three or three out of five, and those were so good that it's like, oh, yeah, it's very defendable. But I, I think it's actually lower than you think and our ability to gauge these things is is getting further and further re- from reality i remember a couple of years ago we were talking about you know the next batman movie is going to come out and it's going to make a billion dollars and it's almost doesn't matter if it's good or not well i mean to the industry it doesn't matter you know i mean solo uh, everybody talks about solo being a catastrophe solo fucking raked in hundreds of millions of dollars well that's only relative to what the perceived expectations were and once again we're that's coming strictly from a industry perspective right yeah. Not necessarily a audience or personal enjoyment. Sure. I thought Solo was okay. Yeah. I mean, I have my problems with it. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of problems with it. I, I actually don't think it's that good. But it's yeah. certainly better than the second and third of the new trilogy. The second and third. The, you, uh... I mean, the... The Last Jedi. The Last Jedi and the, the Rise of Skywalker. Which are pretty much unwatchable to me. Uh, all three of them are have well, pretty the, much unwatchable. To well, me. I understand, but I think the first one at least was trying to be something and was successful was what it was trying to be. Uh, the first hour is pretty solid. And yeah. after that, for me, it sure. just goes to shit quick. But it, it, it's definitely, you look at it and say, okay, I know what you guys were trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, okay. Yeah. And, and now, granted, it wasn't terribly ambitious. It just seemed, I, I wrote an enormous post on my uh, on my problem with the new trilogy as a whole. It's on my website, www.thatdillandavis.com. You can go and read uh, my problems with the new trilogy. Um, those, those problems seem to be absent in the world of the 70s. I think because we're, we're so conscious as a sequel culture when now. When you said the 70s, oops, do you mean? Well, there's no Sorcerer 2. There's well, no, no, but there was Shaft and Shaft Two, and Shaft goes to Africa. That's true, and there was a plethora of Omen films, for Correct. example, yeah, and Exorcist films, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there yeah. was Godfather Two. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you had total serials in the sixties and seventies. The, the the challenge we always have, right, is 
The 70s was, I hate to say this, 50 years ago, right? So the things that survived, are, is, the stuff that survived is the good stuff. We don't remember the shit. Or, or, or not as near as high a percentage of it, right? Just like 50 years from now, people are going to remember whatever that is that maintains some degree of cultural awareness. So, I mean, the stuff that's excellent always survives. So the further away you get, the, the lower the percentage of stuff you remember is, but the stuff you remember is good, right? It's like mm. Hollywood's golden age, I'm sure, was full of absolute garbage. It's probably a similar hit rate, I would imagine, as to what is happening at least 10 years ago. But it's like the stuff that worked survived. I mean, how many movies like Casablanca were released in that time frame? A and, lot. Yeah, and that's the only one that, that's not the only one, obviously, but that's the one that remains because that one's a, okay, yeah, that's top ten flick of all time. Out of out of the outstanding films that came in the 40s, it leads the pack, that right. one in Citizen Kane, yeah. But it's one of those that, I'm sure there were many movies that had similar themes, at least from a very high surface level, right? Here's a love triangle with a little bit of espionage or intrigue, and most of them were probably fine, you know, but are lost to history. The only people who remember are people who are now 90, and Leonard Maltz, who remembers everything. Well, right. Well, and I, 90s. I think, <laughs> I think we're also kind of, we're coming back around eventually. Like, I, I remember Robert Sklar in, in one of his books, Movie Made America, you know, he talked about how in, I think 1945 was the high point. It was like high almost from what perspective? From a movie production point. But like how like, from a critical or Well well I mean there were well I don't know how to gauge that but but you know Hollywood was putting out like almost 500 movies a year. Right. And and in the there was a span there of 4 or 5 years during the war where it was it was like 450, 460, 480 and no TV. No there, there was no television. And but Americans back then went to the movies like well, they mean, went is, three, four times a week. This is, this is a real problem because I do think that Hollywood is. I mean, what would you I mean, I'm using Hollywood, not necessarily for Los Angeles. California well, the, the, the American uh, entertainment production apparatus, yeah, this whole right. And I mean, this is the worst point ever. I mean, and they seem damned intent on. Destroying their business. Well, I don't, I don't know if it's the worst point ever, and this this was the you point that I was going so? to make because okay, I don't I don't know what we're at now, but it just seems like every everyone I talk to and everywhere I go is, have you seen this on Prime? Have you seen this on Netflix? Mm -hmm. Have you seen this on Max? Have you seen this? And I'm like, no, like I can't I can't watch all this shit, right. and I'm I'm starting to think, well, that's where. And I watch a lot of fucking movies, man. Mm -hmm. Like, well, check out my letterbox. Like, I yeah, you. I'm already uh, I'm past thirty movies for the month, which is. You know. Scary and impressive. Yeah, and 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 I would that's say about TV. That's fine. Yeah, this ninety percent of them is are brand new movies, and and I mm -hmm. I go out and see movies. Like I I saw the Equalizer three on Tuesday for Tightwad Tuesday, and anyway, when I'm it just it just seems like Hollywood is, in again the American movie making apparatus is kicking out so much content that it's almost like back to to me it's like we might be going back to the nineteen forties in terms of. Making, so much content from a theatrical perspective or from a... Well, they're not going into theaters, well, see, but... Okay, go on. 
but it's, it's being released on a on a screen that you can see right. at home. And see, but think, it's still being made. It is still being made, and this is the problem that I think that the we're going to call it Hollywood to make it easy, right? Is they're getting really close to a self destruction perspective because you, you, there's like five different things that are damaging what you and I like to think of as the movies, right? Which is a combination of short form storytelling and a communal, you know, activity and the biggest, loudest screen possible. So you had the pandemic, right? That put the kibosh on the industry for quite a while. It almost killed the theater business. Well, yeah, it, it almost killed the theater business. And then you had streaming which everybody jumped all in on streaming and things that would be released theatrically or would be better served potentially as a theatrical movie are going on as prestige or wannabe prestige. But now they're getting to the point where they realize, well, oh, wait a second. This may not be profitable, right? So to make up for some of the lost revenue with the pandemic and streaming, theaters, who are also getting squeezed by the Marvel Disney machine, you know, giving up 80% of the ticket revenue on the first two weeks or whatever the numbers are, they're raising prices. I mean, you take a family of four to the movies now, oh, I mean, you're I looking know. at 100 bucks. I know. No yeah. problem, no doubt about it, right? And now, right now, now we've got, you had the director strike, the writer's guild strike, and the actor's strike, all happening essentially concurrently. The director's one got wrapped up pretty quickly, and it looks like the writer's one's going to be wrapped up, I guess, reasonably soon as their projection, right? So... Big movies are getting pushed back, right? Because Dune 2 right. is getting pushed from November to next March or something like that. Yeah. and It's a huge delay. It's a huge delay, and it's largely because, what, Timothy Chalamet won't be available to promote it? Not that that's going to impact my desire to see it. I mean... Yeah, but if you don't have your major star there to push it like that... I'm talking about myself... Exclusively, yeah, I, I right, get the, right. I get yeah. the reason. From I a really yeah. do. From a studio standpoint, yeah. it, it doesn't make so any sense. You've got sense. these four or five things that are just making that what the industry needs are a handful of very successful, financially and critically, I'm sure as well, things that are just getting pushed back. Because mm. I looked at a slate. There's a lot of things that are intriguing that are coming out, or whether they come out on schedule or they get delayed. I have no idea. You've got what? Killers of the Flower Moon. You've got The Killer, which is going to go primarily to Netflix, just like Killers of the Flower Moon will go. They'll go to the theaters, but it's primarily yeah, Apple it'll go, TV. We, we might catch it at uh, River Oaks. Right. But it's one of those where they, they're not exploiting these talented filmmakers and presumably excellent films for the movies. They're exploiting it for streaming. Right. Which has got a hard cap, right? You're only going to get so many subscribers. You know, and I don't suspect I'm going to jump to Apple TV. I might. but who Or Apple Plus or whatever it's called. And then you've got, you know, hell, there is a rom-com that they're making, which I'm you know, I was talking to my wife. It's like, oh, you know, they don't make those anymore. But it's got a Sidney Sweeney and who's the guy from Top Gun? Not Tom Cruise. <laughs> Glenn Powell. Okay, yeah. And it's like, okay, just envision my head. I can, I can envision seeing that, but who knows if that'll come out because, you know, that would be based on those actors promoting it. You know, and I know Richard Linklater's got another movie coming that mm. got debuted at TIFF, I guess. Yeah. Maybe just picked up, but I think it was picked up by Netflix. 
Jesus. And it's yeah, it's starring Glenn Powell again. And it's called Hitman. Huh. And I think it might be about a hitman. I don't know. I don't know much about <laughs> it. But it's one of those that okay, this is intriguing. Well, with with Linkletter, you never know. Yeah, exactly. And I saw a preview for a movie that's coming out soon called The Creator. Have you seen this? Yeah, yeah. And I think this is going to be a terrible bomb. Yeah. Although it looks like a very intriguing movie. Yeah. And it's one of those things. I looked at it and said, yeah, I'm interested in seeing that. That's the vibe I get from it. Yeah, it's like, I bet you this could be pretty fascinating. But I suspect it's going to bomb yeah, terribly. I mean, it looks like Chappie. Or I don't know. Like, Chappie looked pretty terrible to me. I'd, I'd never like, seen Chappie. but I didn't either. But, but it looks like a Blomkamp type yeah. film. And those generally... But I don't know. And then I saw a preview for the new Zack Snyder... Star Wars movies? They're not Star Wars movies, but they're Star Wars movies. They, they're they basically space operas. Yeah, have you seen that? No. That looks remarkable. But it's going to Netflix. Well, that's what I say every time I think Zack Snyder's coming out yeah. with a movie, and then I see it, and I'm like, it, fuck. It may be pretty bad, right? I'm not saying that's necessarily that Zack Snyder or any of these things. I don't know if any of these things will be good. They may all be pretty mediocre to terrible, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. But a lot of these are getting shifted away from the theaters. And when they're going to go to streaming, they're not going to make that money back. No. So they're, the well is going to dry up. And then with, I mean, remember the last time they had the writer's strike and the movies that came out after that? Like, we're, oh, yeah, you guys made this without writers or without time. You know, that second Transformer movie is one of the big ones that came out after the writer's strike. And it's like, oh, this was fucking terrible. No, those I think are a lot of it, fucking terrible. I no, like the, Bumblebee, though. No, I like the first one. Okay. The first 20 minutes of that one is good. Yeah, I think I like the first one okay. I mean, I mean, I'm comparing it against the rest of the Transformer movies especially. But I do think they're setting themselves up for a big problem here. We're making movies that are only budgeted at $150, $200 million, right? And if they don't succeed, it's a catastrophe. It's like I didn't see the newest Indiana Jones movie, which if you'd have told me that 20 years ago, I wouldn't have believed you. Mm-hmm. But I had no interest in watching it. And I know that cost them. That was a pretty penny. Yeah, and it's one of those things where, in the grand scheme of things, that shouldn't matter to me, really. It, but I know that it's, it does matter to me because if it fails, then okay. Well, I don't, <clears throat> I don't mean to get off on a, on a tangent, but my, I, I wrote a review on the Dial of Destiny, which you can find on Letterboxd, and I also, no, I don't think I posted it to my website, but but you can. Uh, I mean, the, the Dial of Destiny was was not bad. It was just a missed opportunity. Right. Considering it, was, it came out the same year as everything, everywhere, all at once. It was just sort of the the, the Phoebe Waller-Bridge character, who I, I was fine with. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it they, it had the opportunity to go from like a, it was it was an okay to reasonably good movie, to it could have been a superpower movie. Sure. Particularly, when you say superpower, you mean not I, from a superhero perspective. I mean, it could it could have been... It could have been Temple of Doom. It, it, it could have been Raiders. Family. It yeah. could have been, yeah. It couldn't have been Raiders. And Let's not say that. It it could have Last touched, Crusade. <laughs> it could have been Last Crusade or better. Sure. You know, I, particularly when you when you look at, I know you haven't seen it, so I'm not going to blow up anything, but there were character traits that her character had mm-hmm. that would fit very keenly into an aged character of Short Round. Okay. And I think if they would not have had to go too far to make that work. No, I wouldn't think so. You know, but as I understand from James Mangold, like they were shooting everything everywhere all at once at the same time as they were shooting Dial of Destiny, which which then leads me to believe that you completely fucking missed your window. Like this, you, you could have had this wrapped up two years before, three years before, five years before. And there's a great rewatchables episode mm-hmm. 
uh, is it rewatch? No, I think it's the big picture where they went through the sort yeah, of. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't listen to that because I haven't seen the uh, right the yeah. Dial of Destiny and and after you see Dial of Destiny, you should go back to that episode and listen yeah, to it. Where I tend to. Uh, Sean Finnessy makes this extraordinary point: was why didn't we have an indie film in '95? Why didn't we have yeah. one in '99? Why didn't we have one? You know, there's four or five movies missing out of that, and if they had just continued that trend and mm-hmm. they'd continued making them, then eventually somebody would have said before before 2022. They would have said, uh, let's bring back short round sure. and, and and do that. Like... Right. <laughs> yeah. And particularly Probably if not. you've got people like Gary Kurtz and Lawrence Kasdan and mm-hmm. those people that are involved, Adelaide Jr. You had those, talents. Right. Who were familiar with the Bebop Aluba. Yeah. And I was actually kind of surprised it was received so negatively because, I mean, Mangold is not Spielberg, but he's, he's very good. He's very yeah, stuff At the very least, it's very solid. My problems with the film are small, um, but the but taken as a whole, the they just missed a great opportunity. Right, and it sounds like, I mean, what the the general perception I got was the fan reaction was somewhere between apathetic and antagonistic. Uh, I'm not antagonistic about I'm not it. Not saying you. Yeah, but yeah, the, the fan general. reaction. Yeah, but you know, it's so easy to piss off fans now. I don't know what it is about this. You know. I remember you and I were having this conversation like 25 years ago. Oh, boy. We were, I don't remember where we were, but we were smoking, of possibly course. Possibly a bar. Possibly a bar. And drinking like we are now. And uh, I, don't, I don't know what the context was. We were talking about a film, and there were people that were pissed off about this film. It was the late 90s for sure. Okay. And I was just like, well, it's just a fucking movie. Like, why are you pissed off at a movie? Little well, did I know that that like that attitude would get worse. Yeah, it would get really. Of course, everybody's turning into Trekkies. Ah, uh, you know, it used to be that they were the they were the ones they who were the weirdos. Don't be fucking with my canon. Well, it was just one of those where th- those were the only people that were following it from a pop culture perspective that vigorously, right? And certainly, there were huge fans, and I'm sure there were, you know, Gone with the Wind recreations or what have you don't defy the prime directive but it, yeah the sequel to gone with the wind with uh oh i didn't even see it timothy dalton yeah, that pissed no, a lot well, of people off yeah. yeah it's like why 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 there's no it's not anything beyond it's nothing beyond an obvious cash grab right there's no artistic benefit to a sequel with gone with the wind 60 years later no i mean that was and if i remember correctly it was released on amc That's or tbs or, right yeah. you know although I'm, I'm sure somebody can come up with something that's like oh yeah well here's a legacy sequel that worked really well and i'm i mean maverick is a good example but yeah but regardless so i think that's the problem with fans is it used to be fans didn't feel like they had any degree of ownership the reason they didn't feel like they had any degree of ownership was they were largely isolated Right. There wasn't the internet. If you published fan fiction, where are we going to publish it? Nobody was going to publish it. Right. But now you just throw it up on the internet. So now the subcultures developing and they're not, and this isn't a declaration of this being a bad thing. It's just the dynamic change, right? Where you didn't feel like you owned it like these other places do. And Star Trek is the first one I can be conscious of where, yeah, you'd have the, you know, they, they had the conventions and there was the, the books that got written and everything else. Right? So people would dress up not as the characters from Star Trek, but as variations. Oh, here's a new Vulcan, or what have you. And now it seems like all of these popular ones have spawned their own versions of that. So they're 
feel like they own it in some capacity, which I think not pissing off your fans is critical, but let's not kid ourselves if the fans don't own it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't like the two Star Wars movies that I was referencing, and some of that was because, you know, hey, this is not what I think of as Luke Skywalker or anything like that, and I recognize that I don't have any ownership over it. But it's like, oh, okay, I don't like it. I'm not going to be furious about it or anything, but I'm just like, okay, this is not for me. Yeah, um, I don't know how I feel about that. Like, I, I recognize that. And I remember that interview with Mark Hamill where he talked about, you know, this is a character that I play. I have no control over the character. I didn't write the character. I'm just acting out. Right, but he would have more ownership than, say, you or I would. Well, I, I certainly feel that way. Yeah. And I, I feel that he has more ownership over that character than Ryan Johnson. I think so as and well. And quite possibly, you know, when, when Mark Hamill told Ryan Johnson, look, I don't think this is right for the character, I think Ryan Johnson should have fucking listened to him. I, I tend to. Yeah, he definitely should have. Right? He definitely and, would have. And because Ryan Johnson's coming from it from a, a fanboy, so of course, if you're Kathleen Kennedy, you're thinking, "Well, then what does the fanboy want?" Because if the fanboy wants that, then all of them want that. So that's what's going to earn the greatest amount of money. So I just, yeah, it's, it's I, just that attitude is very frustrating. It's very frustrating. And then you take a look at the first one. I know you have your problems, but then my biggest problem with it is, like, oh yeah, you don't ever get Han, Leia, and Luke in the same scene. This doesn't make any sense. It, it does. <laughs> and actually, I wrote a. A third act to that, a different third act, which well, see, you can read about you, on you my take, There's you taking website. some ownership, which is what we're referencing, which is why people right. get pissed off. Right. Right. But it just seems, I mean, that particular movie was so frustrating because it just seemed so obvious what was going to happen. Yeah. No, it's, it it's very like obvious. This it, is a remake of. Yes. But four. I mean, even even like the reunion of the three characters is, is something that everyone thought was going to happen because and it was it such an obvious have. conclusion. Yeah. And the fact that it it didn't, it wasn't. It wasn't spoilers. Han dying at the end necessarily. It was Han never seeing Luke again. Right. That was like, you're kidding me. Then yeah. why did Han die? Right. What's the point? Right. I thought, I mean, spoilers for reading my article. I really thought that they were going to be in a situation. Uh, Han and, uh, and Leia were going to be in a situation in which Luke needed to come in at the last minute and save the day. Which would make a lot of sense. It, it would, uh, particularly if you... If you look at the ending of the first film, mm-hmm. it would make a, lo- a lot yeah, of sense. Exactly. It's a- it, it seemed so obvious that when they didn't do it, I think a lot of the disappointment is rooted in that. And I, I think that if you move to uh, The Last Jedi, mm-hmm. uh, the situation repeats itself where it's it's so obvious that The, the Last Jedi should end a certain way. And it's so obvious that, that Luke should mentor Rey. Right. Like Yoda mentored him. It's like, no, we're going to subvert your expectations. And, right, which was Ryan Johnson's point was, no, that's I'm not going to do the and obvious thing. Like, like, fuck you. You're not Kevin Smith writing Red State. Right. You're, you're writing Star Wars. That's not how it's, it's supposed to go. not what we signed up for. Just give us, give us the basics. Give, give us the meat and potatoes. Yeah. You can certainly add side dishes that are subversions, if you will. So, I, I don't know. So, we get into the original question, right? Which is, why did the fans get so pissed? And why does this matter? That's why, in my opinion. I mean, because Lord knows, I mean, it pushed it off of enough Star Wars fans that when's the next time they're going to come out with a Star Wars movie?
dealer. My partners and I are going to make the deal of the century. Now, here's a little something I kind of enjoy. Let's say you've had a rough day of uh, guerrilla warfare. The revolution's getting bogged down. You're hot. You're tired. You smell like you smell now. This bottle opener on the side here will open bottles of all nationalities. Police Navidad. Where the hell have all the good salesmen gone? Don't answer that management. Simply lock the target in the sight, and the rest is, well, easy. Hello, Order forms are in the catalog, gentlemen. I hope we can do business together. Mr. Monks, I believe that your one small sale will help make limited global warfare a reality well into the 90s. And we will all prosper accordingly. Get the money! We're in a battle to sell this plane, gentlemen. And the enemy is not Moscow. The enemy is Rockwell, Northrop, Lockheed. I don't want to be a part of that anymore, Ed. Take a couple of samples. Take them home, see if you like them, let me know how many you need, okay? I'm gonna give you a little touch-up. We're gonna show the Pentagon. We'll show the world. Chevy Chase, Sigourney Weaver, and Gregory Hines are going to make the deal of the century. Plain gentlemen, and the enemy is not Moscow. The enemy is Rockwell, Northrop, Lockheed, McDonnell Douglas, Grumman, and the rest of our worthy competitors, foreign and domestic. Well, that kind of seriousness goes back and forth with those ridiculous commercials and the cynical humor there, and also in that speech is supposed to bring back, I think, memories of Dr. Strangelove. Mm -hmm. But this movie is such a mess, it doesn't deserve that comparison. Even in a comedy, I think you've got to have a plot that makes sense and characters who have just a little bit of consistency. Deal of the Century is such a complete hodgepodge of styles and stories, such a confusing mixture of strange deals and strange motivations that I finally gave up trying to make any sense out of it at all. The movie was directed by William Friedkin, who's made a lot of good movies like The French Connection and The Exorcist, but he missed the boat this time. Yes, I think he did. I think this is a case, uh, just what you were referring to, of where you try to do two things, make a serious statement and be funny at the same time and you wind up doing neither. Mm -hmm. uh, the Chevy Chase, aren't I a silly goose character, is totally inappropriate mm -hmm. uh, for the serious part of the film, which is saying to us that uh, arms salesmen, weapon salesmen have no morals. Now, we know that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you get a message you already know, and you get a comedy style that is more appropriate for Chevy Chase's vacation movie or something. Right. Another thing I missed in the movie was the fact that there wasn't a strong plot to pull us through, especially yeah. in a comedy, especially in a comedy. You've got to have something that engages the characters and gives them things they're supposed to do so that we can laugh at the fact that they're not doing them. Yeah. If the movie is totally anarchic, the comedy doesn't have anything to push against. If he were just going for that one deal all the way through the movie, it, that would be the kind of hook you're looking for, but there are a lot of shimmies all the way in, got it. In, on, along the way got there. It. Richard Pryor is next in his favorite role, Richard Pryor. You wake up in your garage, <laughs> under your car. <laughs> Dogs be looking at you. Saw it, I remember it being kind of painfully unfunny and it being marketed as a comedy. Okay, well, it's it's in here. Um, this film was one of two military-based comedies that were meant to be competing with each other. Deal of the Century was the Warner Brothers, and Paramount Pictures was Best Defense in the pipeline and had already started filming in 1982, which was based on a novel by... Robert Grossbach and starring Dudley Moore. However, they ins they inserted the Eddie Murphy stuff. I know yes. that post production, so that may have delayed it. Poor test screenings forced the studio to do a last minute rewrite, which involved the million dollar edition of comedy megastar Eddie Murphy, which probably made that money back. 
the character delayed the film from its intended Christmas 1983 release date until summer of 1984. This film also suffered from problems mostly due to the departure of writer Paul Brookman due to reshoots that they needed to do on Risky Business and Chevy Chase's problematic ego on set. Hmm. Chevy wasn't a cooperative, huh? Go figure. So this film, meaning Deal of the Century, suffered from problems mostly due to the departure of Paul Berkman, who who was writing that, but they needed him for risky business. And yeah, so I know I saw it in the theater now, because I remember Chevy Chase and Sigourney Weaver for sure. Oh, they were having... No, 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 I just remember them they, they being... They were in it. I just yeah. remember them being in it. So Gregory I Hines. That's a new touch-up for you! Like I said, I think I saw it when he came to I mean, yeah, we're talking about the critical eye of a 12-year-old, so let's not take that as the God's honest truth. <laughs> I mean, maybe if I rewatched it, I'd enjoy it, but I have no interest. I think it's so... I'm, I'm not looking for, like, a revival or anything. That I, I do think that it's underappreciated. I think there's a lot of films in the 80s that are that are comedies that are meant to be satirical and meant to be, like, extremely dry wit and yeah, humor. Yeah, but that's the hardest that thing to pull off. It, it is. I think that's why Head Office is, like, nobody knows that film. Nobody went to go see that. It's a complete failure. Right. Head Office is available on HBO Max, and Dylan covered it on Episode 2 of the Super 70 podcast. And I think that's why Deal of the Century uh, didn't, you know, there's this, there's this fucking hysterical scene. Where Chevy Chevy Chase is an arms dealer. He's in Latin America. He's he's uh, walking to his car and he gets held up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the guy who's robbing him has this like piece of shit bursa. And Chevy Chase looks at him. He's like, "Oh, Argentinian? <laughs> what are you like? Poor? What's dude? Right. Let's 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 get something better for you." And he opens up his trunk and he's got a fucking arsenal in his Which, trunk. Yeah, so that's a little bit so, more of a sophisticated right. joke than. It's like tell you what, if you give me that bursa, I will give you this very cheap Smith and Wesson. So you're getting high quality, and it's and a three eighty. Like it's not you know it's not crazy, but it's worth at least three bursas. So all you have to do, if you just want to give me the three hundred bucks, then I'll give you a better gun. And the guy was like, well, I was hoping to rob you of 300 bucks. Like, yeah, well, you can t- give me your $300 in the Bursa. I'll give you the Smith & Wesson. You're you can take that ahead. 380 Basically, and, you're robbing me. You can rob four other people because if they, if they, don't, if they don't pay you, you can actually shoot them with, with that gun versus that Bursa, which we know is not going to, especially if you fired it before, it's not going to fire now. And even as a kid, I thought, geez, that is really funny. What was I, eight when that came out? It was probably nine when I saw it on HBO. You may have had a more sophisticated sense of humor than myself well, that's, at that age. that's quite Of course, then again, it's, it's one of those things where humor is so specific to an individual. Yeah. Right? There's a lot of things that I find hilarious that you can't stand and vice versa. Right? And it's just one of those things where comedy is m- the most personal entertainment out there. Because what are you going to find funny versus other people, you know? It doesn't always jive. Dennis Miller has a great um, set about what makes him laugh and mm-hmm. what makes people laugh and who knows what that is. And, right. You know, and you're bound to piss off somebody if you, oh, absolutely. If, you if you're trying to make people laugh. You yeah. Know? So it's one of those where, I mean, comedies are. It's hard to have a successful comedy. And then when you're going into satire. Where it's like you have to. It either has to be exceptional and clever, or your audience has to really agree with that perspective. Like Strange Love. Yes. Strange Love. Although there were people that 
at there's the time that did not understand. I think there's a lot of people now who don't, who don't even like it. Yeah. You know? But, I mean, one of the few satires I can... I mean, Verhoeven is the only guy I can think of who's pulled off satires for me consistently. Oh, as Starship Troopers. So, uh, Starship Troopers and RoboCop and I think Showgirls is a total satire. And it's one of those where it's like, okay, his outlandishness really works. I mean, it's very much like Monty Python, right? That's satire, but it's so grossly over the top yeah. that it's absurd. And so the satire is so broad, but yet so focused. It's a weird contradiction. Yeah, I, I just saw a remake of Showgirls. A remake of it? Yeah. And it was it was tough to watch. It was I, it was not a satire. Was so. it? I, wow, I had no idea. Yeah, it was the Swedish director. I guess it was came out last year, the year before. It made it made the rounds in the circuit. I don't even remember what platform I saw it on. You can check my letterbox for it. It's called Pleasure. Well, yeah, I saw that, yeah. but I didn't know that was a, a remake. Oh uh, yeah, I'm like, I saw it like almost not beat for beat, but scene for scene. Okay, well, you know, yeah, and it just it was a shocking film. Okay, more shocking. Like I, I don't know how you felt. Like I, I think, I think I saw Showgirls in the theater, and I'm not exaggerating. And people, I every time I say this, people are like, "You're exaggerating." No, I'm not exaggerating. Even my wife says, "No, we didn't do that." I'm like, "Yes, we did." We saw Showgirls in the theater six times. You're exaggerating. Yeah, this, I know. <laughs> Everybody says. And, you know, I saw it opening weekend, and I was just confused. I was like, what? I can see you seeing it twice because of that. Right. And so we went back, I, I think, the next week. It was in theaters quite a long time. Yeah, I think it was actually yeah. reasonably successful. It wasn't It was total catastrophe. Right. It was, it was greatly panned, oh, but, yeah. it, but, but it, I think that it made a lot of money. Anyway, so yeah, we went back the next weekend just to sort of try to understand what it was. Sure. And then I think the weekend after that, I went to go see it with a friend. He was like, I hadn't seen him. I'm like, well, I'll go see it with you. Okay. And that happened a couple of times. So I saw it at least five or six times in the theater. So I'll back that number off maybe one. Oh, good. But, <laughs> but anyway, like, and then somebody, somebody later on said, you saw, you sat through that six times. That was their main concern. I was like, well, the whole movie wasn't, wasn't should not be the thing that bothers you mm -hmm. which what should bother you is me sitting through the rape scene six times you know going back knowing that it's something that yeah, horrible but was I'm, in my it my speculation you know? is you were not going exclusively for that no and of course people are like you know you want to see tits that much but I, I was genuinely i was genuinely perplexed as to why people were panning it or were upset about it or or just while the esther Haze really went on a tantrum when he was pressing that film mm -hmm. And I didn't, I didn't see anything greatly controversial in it, considering it was NC seventeen. Like tits or tits or right, tits right, or tits. Right, right. Just well, because you have a lot of tits doesn't mean you yeah, need I mean, to raise it. Was, it, it was certainly rated appropriately. You did. You think so? I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of you know, like a lot of Verhoeven stuff. It's a pretty ugly flick, right? Yeah. I mean, even though it's one hand very funny, it is. You know, I mean, it's over the top from either the violence. Or the sexuality side. I mean, yeah, yeah, full frontal nudity, at least on the female side. You know, yeah, I mean, and, I do. And I do yeah, and it's, and it's definitely, you know, NC-17 is not for children under 17. And I think that's appropriate, right? Right, right. Because I don't think that's a movie that, I mean, everybody can make their own choices to a certain degree. But I don't think you should be rolling the 12-year-olds in there to check that out. I think that's the biggest. I think, I think Basic Instinct would have been. In C seventeen, yeah. I think there's a lot of movies like that that it shouldn't be the automatic 
kiss of death when he receives it. I think it's very appropriate in some circumstances. I think that we agree on that. I think the problem is that it wasn't used enough. I think so. Yeah, you know, if if they the had rating. used it like wildfire. Yeah, if it was mainstreamed. Yeah, normalized. Yeah, normalized. Yeah. But it's one of those things where the the ratings have changed so dramatically over the years. It's it's hard to believe. Things that were PG in the 70s would definitely be ours. Mm-hmm. And G's would be PG-13. And things that were R in the 1990s couldn't even be released in their format right now. So it's just those things changed shockingly so over the decades. Uh, yeah, as the... Who knows what it'll be in 10 years. There's a great doc on this. I think we discussed this before, but this film has not yet been rated. Mm-hmm. It goes through that whole argument. The MPAA, like I've got... I understand the need for it, but I got problems with it. I think everybody would. I mean, because how do you, how could it ever be done correctly? Right? Because it's inherently subjective. Unless you've got statistics that, like they do, right? You're, you know, in a PG 13 movie, you can say fuck once. Right. And that's it. And it can't be used in a sexual perspective. Right. But it seems sort of, I mean, you can't just apply that. It's like, yeah, sometimes one fuck will probably be enough. In the context to be an R, and sometimes it'll be a PG. It just, or, or why are you counting? Yeah. Well, yeah why don't you just make a story? and then? Well, that's what I'm saying is from a, yeah. a ratings perspective. Yeah. What are you going to do? Set up these type of boundaries? Okay, you if you have more exposed breasts that exceed, you know, 2% of the total runtime, it's an automatic NC-17. I mean, that seems not arbitrary necessarily, but it's, eh, that seems sort of wrong-headed. So I don't know if there's any way the MPAA could actually perform criticism free yeah so i think it's just one of those that in a perfect world which i don't think it is anyway but it's in a perfect world it's like ah, we did our best chance you know best we can well yeah. as long as we don't slide into what other countries do which is you know the the government yeah. issues an age certificate or like a ban or a ban yeah the exorcist was fucking banned in britain for 15 years oh, yeah i know and it's one of those that that's crazy it's not to the british i guess yeah, I mean, I understand. Or at least not at that time. Or maybe some of them, I'm sure, thought it was great. I understand. Like Before we we started recording the commentary, I, we were talking about something completely different. And I said something like, "There's there are 60 films from from Nazi Germany which are which are banned, which are not allowed to be screened. In Germany. In, in Germany uh, without proper context. Like, you have to see them at the Film Archive in Munich. Under certain circumstances, then you can purchase certificates, et cetera, et cetera. That's a completely different yeah, that's circumstance than, than the British government or the entertainment apparatus of the British government deciding that, you know what, we, the, our population doesn't need to see The Exorcist. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know which Nazi films you reference, right? Are this are these um, entertainment? Are they documentary? Or Both. So it's one of those that I don't know. You, you liked... I mean, Triumph of the Will is banned in Germany. I mean, okay, how... See, that's, to me, dumb. You'd Seuss, too. What's that? You'd Seuss, the Jew Seuss. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those... It's a narrative film, but it's... I mean, should... What's the uh, D.W. Griffith that's escaping me right now? Uh, Birth of a Nation. Yeah, should that be banned? No, I don't think so. I mean, I don't... I don't don't, don't don't really... I don't even think it should be shown with a mandatory disclaimer, right? I, I mean... Song of the South is not banned from a governmental perspective, but, you know, corporate. It's de facto banned. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, at least they own the film. They can do what they want with it. Is, right. Is, uh, 
unpalatable as we find that. It's just one of those that it's such a slippery slope because then who defines what should be not allowed? And That's what scares me. I mean, because I mean, right now, if you have smoking depicted in films, it's almost a guaranteed R. And it's like, yeah, but do we believe that violent movies cause violence or not? You know, and that's it's, yeah. It's you believe to, smoking on screen is going to cause smoking, but you don't think that violence on screen causes right. violence, right? Or, you know, or casual, sex on screen is going to yeah. And you know, the answer, of course, is neither yes nor no. It's like this weird mash, mishmash in the middle. And we all like to proclaim we would like the studios, for example, to assume that their audience isn't idiots. So it'd be nice to assume that about the general public. And from the general public's perspective, I think they're, no, they're not idiots. Yeah. Well, it just seems kind of crazy. Like, there's there's no law in the United States that regulates pornography. And. Well, there is. That's not right. I mean, there's a law saying children under the age of 18. Yeah, right. You can't view it or make it. Yeah. Okay, there's one. (laughs) Hollywood, obviously, is is a multi-billion dollar industry. Yes. uh, Probably. And I'm, I'm just assuming the high tens of billions to the hundreds of billions right. market cap, and they yeah, regulate themselves true. largely. They re- I mean, they are a business. They're regulated by the federal government because they are a business, but they're the product that they create is, is, is not rated at all Thank God. and regulated. And I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that. Right. I'm, I'm good with the self-regulation as much as we can argue with it. Um, but there are other things in this country which are much worse than Hollywood films that have almost zero regulation. Example. I be, I'm not doubting. I'm well, saying. pornography but is one of them. Is. Yeah. We're, I mean, we're one law. You, yeah, but <laughs> I think it's illegal. Like, some states, and this is part of the problem with the MC-17, made it illegal for people under the age of 17 to go to the theater. Yes. Yes. So, pornography... Is definitely if it's being publicly projected, yeah, in, in a legal. theater. So it's those things that that's true. So there, there are just extraordinarily few laws. Well, I don't know how many there are or not. Right, right? I, I'm not certainly not an expert. I don't know where I'm going with this as an exploratory not conversation. Either, but that's fine. Yeah. That's fine. This is a casual conversation that it could either be kept or edited or come back to it at a later date. Yeah, but it's one of those things that definitely heavily edited. I mean. What kind of laws are there against books, right? There's essentially no uh, laws. There's a lot in the state now, and no, all the school districts. And those those are not the same. That's the same type of thing where it's exposure to children, right? And that's generally from, as far as I can think of, vices, whether they be pornography, whether they be smoking, whether they be um, salacious material. The laws are almost always designed to establish what a legal adult is to be able to access it you know even in nevada where prostitution is legal it's not legal for everybody right if you're 16 you can't go get yourself a lady of the night right right or a dude of the evening depending on what you're looking for right so that is mostly from those type of things where those type of laws apply and i think that's not unreasonable like i i mean no, when, no, I was, when i was that's not unreasonable when i was growing up when i was a kid as much as I like to, you know, sneak a look at my dad's penthouse letters, that was not in my elementary school or junior high library. <laughs> no. And I was upset about it because yeah. I liked it. But most adults at the time said, yeah, it's probably just it's, yeah. it's not your thing. You, you get to be 18. For example, all that stuff is, is banned heavily in uh, in Utah. 
where you basically have a full pornography ban. I don't know what the laws are there. I mean, they have three two beer for God's sake, so it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, who wants to go there? Uh, Mormons. Yeah, it's nice. It's a nice country. It's a nice. Place. It's a beautiful state. Yes. I've been, except it's for Salt Lake. It's kind of ugly. <laughs> but I mean, it's one of those that I mean, yeah. I mean, I've heard rhetoric about book banning and book burning, and most of that is just political grandstanding nonsense. Sure, it's like, we don't want our kids to be exposed to these things. Whether you think the kids should be or not, okay, that's a point for debate, but it's one of those where it's not getting rid of it out of circulation. It's like saying, we don't think that this stuff It's not going into the library. Right. Yeah. It's not going to kids. Okay, well, let's have a conversation on whether that's, but it's not one of those where there's like, oh, yeah, they're banning books now. It's like, that's not actually true. Well, there's there's some books that if you if you don't put on in the library, their kids will just naturally go to the internet. Sure. They'll go to the internet first. But yeah. that doesn't mean that. Just because there's other ways to get things doesn't mean you should just give up and make it easily accessible, right? I mean, kids are certainly running out there not as often as they were at our ages at their time, you know, but people are, kids are running out getting cigarettes. Yeah. Like I said, not like when we were, just like they were not drinking when we were 17. Right. But you right. can still get it, but it doesn't mean it's like, well, we give up. Now we can just sell to them. It's yeah. Not the way it works. It's kind of like the, the age limit on movies where you still had kids sneak in the back door, but yeah, there's absolutely. no reason not to have a. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you just give up. Right. So, I mean, going on that point, I can't really think of anything. I mean, because you go to museums, and I'm sure there are some that are age-restricted. Some oh, exhibits. I don't know. I'm sure there are some exhibits that aren't by law, but yeah. the museum is probably saying, look, we're not going to let you into this exhibit without your parents because mm. it's got disturbing stuff what, or or sexually arousing or whatever. Sure. Right? Sure. But, I mean, the only thing I can think of about from a... What I'm considering art is like painting and sculpting. Not yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, the only things I can think of that really would get people upset from a, quote, legal perspective, end of quote, was was like people having a fundamental problem with the federal government funding those things. That's about the only time I can right, really remember right, that right. problem. That was a big deal back in the late you know, 90s. Maplethorpe and shit? Yeah, Maplethorpe and uh, Serrano, who had the piss Christ. But I don't remember a whole, and I may be mistaken. Right, and I'm sure there were the people out there who were saying we should ban this stuff. Mm-hmm. But most reasonable people said, I don't want my tax dollars going to this. That was right, right. Yeah, I, and well, there was a movement to, you know, we need to just not fund the arts at all because less than a tenth of 1% was going to people like Serrano. Right. And I thought that was ludicrous. I don't know if we should fund the arts. I don't know if it, I don't know if it makes any sense to fund the arts. I really don't. I don't. Why, why, why? Why should the federal, or even state government for that matter, fund the arts? And wh- how do we define fund the arts? Well, we... The, Cause the, I, the, reason I, the reason I say that, let me preface it yeah. real quick, is I like to have the government to have as little control over anything as possible. Sure. So when they're funding art, that means they're directly, indirectly, or capable of directing it. Of directing it. Directing the art. Would you like funding of the arts if the government was saying, okay, you will make American, quote, propaganda, end of quote? Probably not. Well, during, uh, during the 40s, there was, there was heavy government funding of the arts. Yes, because that uh, was for a specific, Specifically for propaganda purposes. But let's just the, say. The way that we indirectly fund now is through tax credits. Yeah, and but that's, that's, that's. That's a slippery slope in and of itself, but I don't. There, I, there's except in California, and New York. I don't think that there's a state here that doesn't have a. I mean, Texas has a tax credit if you make a movie here. 
Yeah, well, the yeah. biggest one is in Georgia. I mean, that's no different than like handing them two million dollars to make a movie. Well, I don't know. It depends on what the tax credits are because there's a lot of tax credits that are handed out with certain financial incentives, right? Like you still have to spend X amount of dollars, mm-hmm. right? It's not like one of those things like okay, you get a twenty percent tax cut, but you have to bring in an entire. You know, you, you're allowed to bring in an entire crew from California. Usually there is some sort of yeah, You have to stay there and do it. That's why yeah. Marvel, she saw their right. shit in but Georgia. It, but there is one of those things where when people say tax credit, they say, oh, they just give it to them, and there's, like, no benefit. That's no, not necessarily always No, the case. no, it's it's off your taxes that you pay for the project. Right, but it's also one of those where there are other conditions oftentimes apply yes, to such things. Yes, that's true, because especially I had, in Quebec. I had, I had seen criticisms where businesses get tax credits. Well, it's like, well, yeah, they only get tax credits if they get to – X amount of dollars, and then there's all these different things that make it a lot more than just oh, they just don't have to pay tax. Sure, it's more subtle and nuanced. It's it's an incentive. Yeah, but and I mean, I'm not a huge fan of tax credits. (laughs) I'd rather give tax credits though than more taxes that go to whatever the government decides to tax dollars out of taxpayers' pockets. Personally, okay. Well, that was interesting. I don't know if we actually got anywhere. Aside from me dominating that and saying, okay, this is what I think and this is why. But, I mean, let's go back to, you know, should should governments fund art? And if so, why? Because you've told me about Canada, right? Mm-hmm. And let's... They fund a lot of arts they there. They fund a lot of arts. They fund media there. Yeah, and, and then there's these restrictions that they place on their radio stations, right? You have to play X amount of... Yeah, the CanCon law, yeah. Does that something that... You can certainly understand why they do it, but do mm-hmm. you fundamentally agree with it? I agree with the the CanCon law because the the Canadians are and this and this I don't want to call this a slippery slope because I don't like the term slippery slope, but there's a there's a fear in Canada because of their because of their extreme proximity to the United States. Their inferiority complex. Uh, well, there's there's a <laughs> There is an inferiority <laughs> complex to a certain extent, but it's it's more along the lines of we will be steamrolled, sure. and then nothing that we have will be what we have. Sure, but uh, so when it comes to CanCon, for listeners, there's a certain percentage of content on the airwaves that must be natively Canadian. And is that for everything or a publicly funded airwaves like PBS? That's for it's for everything. So any anybody, uh, even Netflix. Okay. So, for instance, when I when I lived there, Netflix had like I mean, it just seemed to me like a tenth of the content that we you did in the states, mm-hmm. and it's because there were there were films that did not meet the CanCon law were not allowed on the Netflix. Right. So that was kind of frustrating. It was like it's the same 150 movies, you know, unless they shot a TV series in, in Toronto or something. Yeah. So there, I mean, the X Files was on there. Like, oh, great, that's the one series that you know. That's unfair, but you see what I'm no, saying. No, I do. Yeah. So, so you you see the you perceive the value in it, right? Right. Well, but, they they were afraid that if we if we don't do something, then no Canadian content will be on Canadian airwaves. That was the, that was the, their fear. If the Canadian content was popular enough. Wouldn't it be like SCTV? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was enormously popular, especially in Canada. But they were if you if they did not fund SCTV, mm-hmm. they would not have SCTV. They would they would just have. Do we know that, or they, they would have Saturday Night Live, and right. that would that would be it. But invariably, when there is an opening, something fills that void. Right. It's kind of like okay, we live in Texas, mm-hmm. and we don't have a law saying okay, we will only show. 
only you know fifty percent of movies that are shown in Texas have to be filmed in Texas. Right. It's like it seems like well, why would that exist? Just make it so it's more attractive to Texas people if it matters. I don't know. That's one. Of no, the there's. Things. I mean, there are people in Canada that argue that, and mm-hmm. there there was always. Uh, I wouldn't say a resentment, but there was always an attitude of no, we can't get that here because. And there, there were people that were upset over it. Sure. Um, and that led to, particularly in the Netflix situation, that led to a huge amount of VPNs, mm-hmm. where people were very specifically buying VPNs in Seattle or Colorado or Utah or whatever, and they would they would route their TV through that. You could call in a support line, mm-hmm. and they would teach you how to do it, regardless of the model of your TV. Every you know someone knew, and you pay like six or seven dollars a month. And it was a bargain. And then you got you got American Netflix. Right. I don't think that that stopped Canadians from from watching their own television, whether it right. be Little Mosque on the Prairie or um, Letter Kenny or whatever it was. What's the fucking Shorzy? Shorzy. Number 22 minutes roughing. For what? For being a fucking idiot, Corey. I'll call the guy who retaliates every time. Oh, fucking bull. I've had about enough from the Clearasil kid. Get in the box, you fucking pimple farmer. <laughs> I can't wait to watch you play nightly, and you're going to play so good. You're going to play so good. Hey, who wants to hurt their team more, boys? Keep it up and find out. I'm only taking one of you. I'm only taking one of you. Sticks in. Fucking awful tonight, Shorzy. Yeah, keep working hard, Corey. You can be just like me. Oh, yeah, I remember laying in bed as a kid dreaming about repping high school hockey on a Friday night. I remember laying in bed dreaming about the time your mom tongued my butthole so good I put her in my phone as roll up the rim to win. How do you make that fucking call in a game this tight? <laughs> it's a fucking one goal game. Yeah, thanks, stewardess obvious. Cut the lip. Fuck you, Shorzy. One more Neutrogena tantrum out of you and you're getting the gate, bud. Try me. Whatever. Don't take your fucking Accutane rage out on me. Horrible call. Sit down, you fucking crater face. Fuck you, Shorzy. Fuck you, Corey. Your mom's twat so swampy, not even Ducks Unlimited will touch her. So your sweetie finally comes to a game and you barely play. Is that more awkward than puberty or is it pretty close? Well, at least I'm not the guy driving all around northern Ontario just to play the no-show to get pumped six goose. Five goose? Can you even fucking read? I heard you're taking aqua dubs and getting jerk-offs on the Saga Beach, too. Getting jerk-offs? What? Getting jerk-offs? Yeah. It's called getting jerked off, you fucking idiot. I know. You don't even know what that is, you fucking infant. Holy shit. This is fucked. You know what's fucked, Cora? The amount of times your mom's faked a jellyfish thing to get me to piss on her. You didn't get the first one? Oh, here comes Liam. <laughs> he punched you right in the head. He punched me right in the head. Fourth place in a 14 league, Shores. You're living the dream. You fucking saw it, Shorzy. Yeah, and you fucking retaliated. I punched him in the chest. He punched me right in the head. You retaliate, you go for two, Liam. It's the first thing they teach you in hockey. You're so fucking simple. That's a terrible call. Yeah, that's why you're near six year of high school, you fucking idiot. Fuck you, Shorzy. Hey, Corey, you sound just like Liam. <laughs> you're fucking out of here, fuck Corey. Fuck you. Get the fuck off the ice. Fuck you. I can't wait till you graduate in like 10 years and come play for us. I'll make a man out of you, fucking pizza face. You don't even have a team. Yeah, only the one with the banners and the rafters, you fucking pigeon. You're folding, you dumb fuck. We're folding? Yeah, your mom's folding too. Huh? Corey. Yes. Corey, who told you we're folding? Um, nothing is going to stop a Canadian from watching that. You wouldn't think so. Yeah, and, and there, but there were, there were um, an enormous amount of Canadian musicians that got a leg up mm-hmm. because of CanCon. Like, it, not not someone like Neil Young who got his big break in the States, but there there is a feeling in Canada of... I have to leave Canada in order to have a career. Right. They're just like a lot of people feel like I have to leave Jackson, Mississippi right. to have a career. Yeah. 
or like Jacksonville, like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers had to, right? And uh, the well, I was thinking of Jackson, Mississippi, specifically because it's such a depressed economic. Sure, situation. yeah, it's seen as a backwater. Yeah, yeah, probably because it is. Probably because it is. Yeah, and there are. I haven't been in Jackson. And that and and the Jackson, Mississippi of Canada is probably Winnipeg. Okay. And uh, you know, I couldn't tell you who's from Winnipeg, or or bands or anything of that nature. They they hold award ceremonies in Winnipeg because they they, they want to yeah they, you know, they, they want people to think oh look we're so Canadian we're holding shit in Winnipeg well, and they probably also want to bring consciousness to an ignored part of you know, they don't want to be ignored so I get it that makes sure. sense sounds great sure That's exactly what you want to do right right um, but there, there there are for for an example there's there's an enormous genre of Canadian rappers okay. Um, and Quebec rappers who are very specific to the north of the border culture sure. that, that would not exist if, if it were not for CanCon. So is that because of CanCon or is that because of the geography? I told this guy where I was from. He said, oh, Canada. Kind of laughs it off. We're funny, huh? Canada cross, patriotic and I honor with my hand on my heart. From the greatest of lakes to the greenest of greens to the rockiest mountains and everything in between. Oh, Canada, oh, you're no fan of us because a movie and TV shows are so amateur. Yeah, we laugh it off, that don't really bother me. Look, we ain't serious unless you really gotta be. Humorous attitudes like kids in a hall. The Jim Carrey, Mike Myers, how we claiming them all. It's the great white north, I'm on the funniest actors. The front of the joke with an abundance of laughter. The red and white flag, keep it high, keep it visual. People say Canada gets stereotypical. Think we finish every sentence with buddy or bye. And if it ain't that, it's either dude A or guy. Yeah, we consider it people and smoke a marijuana. We consider it legal. Still doing rap like the 1990s, but that's how we like it. Off time and grimy. Yeah, I know where I'm from and I told you before. North of America, hard to ignore. Every time I go away, I tell them for sure. I'm from Canada. Oh, 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 Canada. I've been around the globe and heard the confusion. Honestly, a lot of y'all are ignorant and stupid. Yes, we have microwaves, TVs, and cell phones. Unintelligent. We invented the telephone. We made Yahtzee, the light bulb, hockey, and bred the greatest players, Gretzky to Crosby. We all got at least one drink and buddy. And after one drink, all of us think we're funny. A national mascot's a damn beaver. Oh, Canada, we love our beaver. Home of Hells Angels and RCMP. Home of Gordon Lightfoot and SCTV. The Underground Railroad. George St. Pierre right here is where we call home. A healthcare system, y'all know it's free. Keep a girl banging with a full mouth of teeth. I won't even get into the music industry. They say hip-hop is dead. Nah, it's up north with me. I can do this all day. It's a part of my routine. But supper's almost done. And tonight, I'm from the East Coast of Canada. Oh, 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 Canada. I'm from the East Coast of Canada. Oh, 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 Canada. 
Quebecois rap is going to have a limited audience, but, but for sure. But there's always going to be some breakthrough, always, if they're good enough. It almost always happens. Uh, Celine Dion yeah. it was, is probably the best case study for yeah. that. Brian Adams. Well, he's not Quebecan. Yeah. No, they, no. But, I mean, that, I mean, you could make a long list. I mean, one of the things that I actually enjoyed uh, about living up there was that the radio sounded like the radio that you and I used to listen to in the 80s and early 90s. What, a journey? Well, <laughs> lots of raised on radio. Okay. Well, no, I mean, you know, I heard, you heard obviously Neil Young on the radio, Brian Adams, people of that nature. Uh, Metric was on the radio all the time. culture down here uh, actually is behind the Canadian radio culture and it. And I'm not saying that, that CanCon is solely responsible for that, but I turn on the radio now and I You're just, about terrestrial I don't radio. terrestrial radio. Who listens to terrestrial radio? Well, 
not enough people to make a difference. You mean, you mean the radio that's in your car that's not XM or not right. serious? Right, going over the airway. airway. Okay. Or, or what's happening now, streaming. What's happening now? What's happening is streaming from your phone. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, terrestrial radio, yeah. which is – I don't hear anything on there that I that I like. And nobody nobody that I know listens to the radio every day. Everyone's listening to podcasts or listening to Sirius or – Or SoundCloud XM or, or – right, or right. Spotify. But yes. I remember when we were young. Yeah. I mean, I went to high school in Houston. I went to college for a few years in Los Angeles. Those radios were very different. Oh, sure, sure. And they were, and there was a, you know, the rock radio at the time was catering to those audience. Like in Houston, you would hear non-eliminator ZZ Top a lot. Yeah, yeah. And in California, you would hear. Only Eliminator. You would hear only Eliminator, but you'd also hear non-Blood Sugar Sex Magic Red Hot Chili Peppers a lot. You know, it's that stuff that was regionally specific from a popularity that's, perspective. That's true. So it, it is possible that me being in a microcosm of Calgary, which is isolated. I mean, there's nothing a thousand miles west. There's nothing a thousand miles east. Right. Uh, it's true that I was in a pocket that I just happened to turn on to and then not yeah. be exposed to other you know, pockets. stuff you'd never heard before, but who knows? The Canadian next to me, I can't believe they're playing that fucking song again. Yeah. Well, I mean, apparently the, the classic rock market in, in Toronto is just flooded with Rush. I Which believe it. doesn't fucking surprise me yeah, at all. That makes a lot know. of sense. Yeah. But, I mean, we heard Rush on the radio in Calgary. And, and not just your standard three songs. Yeah, but here in Houston, you're your standard three songs, right? But yes. how much Leonard Skinner would you ever hear up in Calgary beyond Freebird and Sweet Home yeah, Alabama? Uh, would you ever hear Give Me yeah, Three give Steps? Three steps Probably never. not. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, that's true. That's true. Yeah, this is really veered wildly off topic, but... <laughs> But uh, but being that it's music, it brings up Tangerine Dream. Right. Which we... Neglected to mention at all during the podcast. And the soundtrack of Sorcerer is just... It's really cool and kind of anachronistic. Anachronistic. Uh, to a certain degree it is, because, I mean, it's all electronica, right? It sounds like it would be right at home with Vangelis' Blade Runner. Right. Right. And it's really synthetic, and everything else about the movie is very analog, so it's... Oh, so it's so you think it's in conflict with each other? Oh, well, maybe, yeah, and it may be why it works. It would work more with Blade Runner. No, 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 no. I'm saying, well, that's why that's why I think it may be successful and so noticeable in Sorcerer because it is different. It doesn't clash so much as just come from a different perspective. I don't know. I thought it, it worked. It could. I, I love the soundtrack, but I do think that it contributes to. You know the dream sequence, almost mm-hmm. like a fugue state type yeah. of situation. Like the, if if it all is all just sort of like a, a hallucination, it, mm-hmm. it definitely aids that. Right. So and I think that's one of the things that's really good about it. There's there's some of those moments of ambiguity. Now I can pronounce it. And wow. in the opening ten fifteen minutes, there's no none of the music plays. None of that music plays at all. No, but once you get into the jungle, right? At least that's my recollection. No, that's right. That's right. So it works. It's really weird. Very. But I think it works. Very. And it, it almost, it also reminds me of John Carpenter's score from yeah, it's very Escape Carpenter, from New York. Yeah. yeah.
it's uh, those two definitely lived in the same world. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, because it reminded me a lot of the Christine soundtrack. Oh, yeah. The Carpenter was is a talented Yeah, musician. I'd love to go see him in concert. I know he does that, or he had been doing it. Oh, really? He would just go around touring. and That would be badass. Movie. I think the, the clips of the movies were showing, it's like, okay, that'd be Oh, while he was, like, playing it live? Yeah. That would be awesome. When he wasn't chain-smoking or watching basketball. Another oh basketball freak. Really? Oh, yeah, he's a huge NBA freak. What's his team? The I think it's the Clippers. Clippers? Which would make sense for John Carpenter. It's never going to work out. <laughs> I mean, if you want to root for a team that's never going to win, just like John Carpenter never seems to want the human race to win, it's definitely the Clippers. Do you think he's that nihilistic? Oh, yeah. Maybe with the notable exception of Starman, is there one hopeful film in his over? Over? I mean, obviously, we always focus on the... What, the, uh... Um, what about Dark Star? Don't they all die? <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to watch it. I haven't seen it since I was a kid. I watched it and was like, this is great. And then I was five or six years older and I watched it and no, I could, is, couldn't get through it. This is so... Yeah. No, I got to think about that. I yeah, did I'm not thinking. like In the Mouth of Madness. Oh, I think that movie's great. Really? Oh, yeah. Loved really? Oh, Are you serious? Great. Yeah, it was great. I loved it. Was Sam Neill in the huh? straitjacket at the end? Yeah, and... it was great. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, Absolutely I think, fantastic. I think you're the only one. You think so? Yeah. No, there's dozens of us. <laughs> oh, I think that... I think that movie's great. I, I, I find that so inventive, and especially when I was watching it and go, okay, instead of making it, um, it's Jurgen Princhow's character's name, Sutter, um, something Sutter. Yeah. It's like, no, no, just, he's Stephen King. This whole thing is a Stephen King thing. It's like, because a lot of it is like Stephen King and H.P. Lovecraft, you know, combined. Oh, I thought that movie's great. Yeah, that movie's probably, for me, his least because like i said there's dozens of us is least appreciated but, i mean yeah you look at uh you know halloween the boogeyman oh he didn't die the thing that's not nihilistic you know escape from la as trash as that is but it still ends on the same downbeat note yeah he's not a yeah yeah cynical nihilistic and cynical clippers fan seems to work though well not really not for the clippers well i mean he was never, not never, that's incorrect, but his mass success was very uncommon. Right? Yes. I mean, yes. Halloween is by far, in the moment, his most financially successful movie. Yeah, and that's, that's one of his worst films. Oh, no, that's not true. Yeah. That is not true either. You're dozens of you, man. No, so Luke and I went to go see it in the theater last year, the year before, and, I was, and actually that was the first time I'd seen it all the way through. And, it was a masterpiece. and I didn't, uh, no, I, I thought it was, no, I, did, I was really surprised at, I didn't think it was edited very well. Some of the, some of the framing was just seemed off and it dragged uh, a lot when I got into the house. I didn't particularly like it all that much, but you, my, the other films that he's done, like Escape from New York, gold, you know, they live gold, Yeah, they the live. thing gold, like he. But, Big Trouble in Little China, gold. Yeah, but all, all box office disappointments. Thing was a disaster. Yeah, well, didn't that come out the same week as? Uh, that was another one that suffered from. I don't know. There the was Star Wars effect. Well, I think that was maybe E.T. came out the same. Maybe E.T. Yeah, maybe the same summer as E.T. Yeah, but it was like, was it the same year as Blade Runner? 
Blade Runner was 82? 82. I think it may have been the same. I think it yeah. might have been the same summer. So like eight. So yeah. Yeah, Blade, Blade Runner got ran over. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, aside from Halloween's, is by far is only one that was financially successful because it cost nothing to make and made a zillion dollars. Right. right. And that's something that, that I'm afraid that we may not ever get back to again. No, we will. Uh, you, I mean, like an auteur going out and filming something for a million dollars and turns around and makes 70? Odds are, odds are seeing it now are much higher than it's been probably in 20 years. Because it's easier to make a movie? Yeah. It's a question of how do you distribute it. Unfortunately, they don't distribute it in theaters right now. They distribute it on the YouTube. Right. Or whatever streaming platform. Like, what was the movie that came out last year that I didn't see? I don't Skin of a Rink or something that was same same type Never of thing. Never heard of that film. Yeah, yeah. some, like, low-budget horror movie that was a blip on the excitement screen for a split second. And now it's on Shudder? I don't know. Maybe? I don't think it's a bloody horror movie, so mm. I don't know. Maybe not. But, yeah, you're going to see it. I mean, we, you know, I sure hope, at least, you always have these type of things because it always goes like this. Yeah, you know the '80s led into the '90s. The '90s led into the 2000s. Yeah, of course, we're going to see a dry spell. I mean, his shit. There hasn't been good movies in that in it, ten years. Twenty nineteen, I think, was the first year in a very long time that had just had an enormous amount of hits that year. Yeah. And and I obviously the pandemic has had a had a jolt on it, and we're in the middle of a strike. We got to get through, but it just right. And then the streaming and all that. The, the streaming but argument. Gonna, I mean, the fact is, you can always if you go see you. You went to go see uh, Sugarls five or six times in the theater. Yeah, yeah. You are not going to subscribe to HBO Max six times in a month. No, you're going to go. You're going to pay once. You may turn it on six to twenty times, but doesn't change what you pay. Right. So until there's consolidation, mergers and acquisitions, it's going to be like that. But how do you feel about the commercials coming back in the streaming services? Makes me very sad. It's going to be just like TV. It's exactly like TV. Which is why we got away from TV. Right. So now it's, might as well go back to TV. Just go back to cable. Go back to direct TV. It's what's going to happen in five years. Yeah. I mean, you'll be able to, you'll jump on Amazon or whatever, and they'll bundle them, these things. Yeah. You're going to, everybody's going to end up spending $100 a month. And that's what it's going to be. Do you have a cable package? No, but I have YouTube TV. Is there a difference? Not really. Do you have a digital antenna on your house? No. So, when's the last time you've seen Channel 2 News? <laughs> or Channel 2 at all? <coughs> 20 years? Yeah, that's what I thought. I subscribe to the Houston Chronicle. Do they still deliver a paper to your house? Uh, they will, but mine is on an app. Yeah. And the, only going... the only reason I'd want the paper is to get the paper. Right. Uh, I certainly miss the textile yeah. feeling of, of Something being tangible. learning. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the it, the app is not perfect. I'm sure not. Yeah. And the Chronicle is not what it was 20 years ago. Yeah. No, no paper is. But right. it's one of the frustrating things is um, that asshole Jeff Miller who, who wrote reviews for the Chronicle. Um, really. I can't get his stuff. Why is it all, like being a paywall for more or something? Well, or no, it's just you know, you go to the entertainment section of, of the Chronicle app and there's there's no there's no movie reviews. There's not at all? No, I just don't think there's any money in re- movie reviews anymore. Well, that's probably true, but if there's... I don't know. Probably not. Probably not. And the critics going away is actually not good for 
No, no, not at all. Not at all. And I had I had enormous I had a whole lot of stories, a lot of funny stories that were Friedkin esque and Friedkin worldwide that I want to repeat, but I'm gonna save it for the Exorcist podcast. We'll do that. Okay. Alright man. Alright, thanks very much for coming over. Thanks for listening to Dave and I while we waxed intellectual on the Super 70 podcast. You can find me, my books, and my blog at www.thatdylandavis.com. I'm also on threads. I'm Dylan Davis, and we'll meet next time in the freaking universe. An actress who makes any director's job easier, Miss Natalie Wood, and one of the few directors whose name will always rank with that of any star, Mr. Frank Capra.
Got it right here, Natalie. Oh, good. Frank, you're a believer in one man, one film, and I'd like to know if you really think it's possible for one man to do all the jobs, all the creative work. Is it, is it possible? Has mm -hmm. it ever been done? No, no, I, it's never possible, but, uh, uh, but, but it has been done. It's been done once. Guess who? By whom? Charlie Chaplin? Yes, Charlie Chaplin. He did the whole thing. So... <clears throat> Now let's get on with it with our work here, shall we? All right, let's do it. Those men nominated this year for the best achievement in directing. Peter Bogdanovich for The Last Picture Show, BBS Productions, Columbia. William Friedkin for The French Connection, D'Antoni Productions, 20th Century Fox. Norman Jewison for The Fiddler on the Roof, Mary's Cartier Productions, United Artists. Stanley Kubrick for A Clockwork Orange. A Hawks Films Limited production, Warner Brothers, and John Schlesinger for Sunday, Bloody Sunday, a Joseph Yanni production, United Artists. And here, and the, here it is, the winner. No, Frank, I, I know that we always alternate between presenters, but I truly believe the winner would rather hear it from you. That's a nice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm very nervous doing this. The winner is William Friedkin. This is a tremendous honor, and I'm very proud to accept it. I'm proud, too, of the people that helped me to make The French Connection. The people of 20th Century Fox, the entire cast and crew, especially Roy Scheider and Gene Hackman for their fine performances, Jerry Greenberg for his cutting, Owen Roisman for his photography. <clears throat> but most of all, I would like to thank the man who made it all possible, not only made it possible for the picture to be made, but for me to direct it. I owe it all to him. His name is Phil D'Antoni. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen.